a young mother with two young children must go on bed rest to uh, sustain a pregnancy. How many challenges is that going to involve? A longtime member in failing health experiences one setback after another in and out of the hospital and still not sure what is next in God's plan. Five-year-old child hospitalized with paralysis for two weeks and the doctors struggle to figure out what's wrong? Those are just some of the crises that our church family is facing right now. And a more complete list would number just about as many people as we have in our church family. Be a very long list. That also, of course, includes a missionary family who faced a, a, a devastating uh, reversal in expectations and are still struggling to know where God wants them to go next. All of these instances, every instance of a child of God facing a, a difficult dilemma. Uh, they all have multiple dimensions to them that only the individual going through it can understand fully. But they all share something in common. I'm going to express that in this way. In such circumstances, we are tempted to be discouraged when afflictions seem to have no purpose and no end. You see, that covers very many of our afflictions. We hardly ever know why. We hardly ever know how long either. Giving in to that temptation of discouragement affects our capacity to function in life and also affects our testimony in the world. And yet it can feel that in the throes of such trials that dismay and even discouragement are practically unavoidable. How do you not get discouraged about things like that? Psalm 6, though, provides for us a better alternative as David relates just such a circumstance that he went through in real life, uh, in, in the course of his walk with God. And he learned some lessons from this particular crisis. Now, we could wish we knew what the crisis was. We, we love it when a heading of a psalm provides uh, a setting, and we can relate that to something we know that took place, uh, in this case, in David's life. But we get no such uh, information in the heading. This one has a heading, but it, it hardly helps us. We are not really sure what some of those words mean, uh, some of the Hebrew words. And we don't get much insight from the text of the psalm either as to what was it exactly David was facing. How old was he at that, mo at that time? Where in his lifespan 
Where was he uh, running for his life from Saul? Was he uh, on the throne of Israel? We don't know. We don't know when any of this happened. But he is relating a specific instance. He has that instance in mind. And it might be a benefit to us that he doesn't tell us in this case. When scripture leaves it unspecific, that tells us that it can apply to a wide range of human experiences, including the one that you might be facing right now. David found that God's grace is sufficient as long as he kept his focus on biblical truth, particular biblical truth about God, and responded in a biblical way. In this psalm, he shares with us the truth about God that is his anchor and also the response that God's grace enabled him to make that made all the difference in his life. Since this occurs in God's word, we're also certain that it can make a difference in our lives as well. Here's the summary of the truth that is the anchor that David is referring to here. It is that God is committed to help his people. And that is a firm commitment. How do you respond to that? You give your trials into his care. You present them to him. You leave them with him. We're going to see David do that uh, throughout this psalm and uh, in ways that we can relate to. There, there are really just two parts to this psalm. In verses 1 through 5, we see David's example. His example of expressing dependence on God as a pattern then that we are to follow. Express your dependence on God when you are facing a trial. Because only God's grace can resolve your troubles. Where else are you going to turn? Present them to God. He's the only option that you have. Verse 1 then, we see David doing a little introspection as an encouragement to inspect your own heart. You're facing a trial. Look on the inside first and ask for God's help because there's a, always the possibility that what you are facing is God's attempt to get your attention and to help you realize that there's some unconfessed sin there that you need to deal with. That's not always the case, but it's always a good thing to check. Make sure, because that's the easiest way to resolve a trial. This is all a, a matter of discipline. This is God uh, trying to say, hey, what about that sin that you have been con continuing to ignore and to indulge in in your life? In this psalm, David utters no confession of sin, 
I think the implication of that is that he checked and he didn't see any there. And that may be your case as well, but don't assume that. Make sure you check, inspect your heart for sin. If you find some there, you confess it to God. You ask for his grace, you turn from that sin. That's got to be your first step. It's often true though that if there are no specific sins, you still have to admit to the Lord and to yourself that I'm still a sinful person, I'm still subject to temptation, and so we're still dependent upon God's mercy and his grace. And so David says in these words, oh Lord, he's going to repeat that four more times in these first few verses. He is starting with his focus on the Lord. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Maybe it's not anger but you can still ask for God's mercy. Uh, Like Job, hardships can feel like God's wrath even when they express none of his wrath. They still feel much the same. So there's a degree of uncertainty here. We don't know why uh, the the challenges uh, are coming upon us. So inspect your heart for sin. In verses two and three, then describe the pain of the trial that you're facing and ask for God's help. Be gracious to me, David says. That's exactly what we need is God's grace. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. The word languishing here indicates that uh, he is uh, feeling weakened, that he's, he's feeling frail. I, I'm, I'm, I'm languishing here, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Uh, literally here, my bones are, are uh, shaken to the depths. Uh, now, that might be an indication that David's trial includes physical weakness, maybe a sickness, maybe a a serious disease. Uh, And of course, things were much more uncertain in those days as far as what physicians understood. It's possible when he says, heal me, he's saying, the problem here is physical. We can identify with that. So many of the challenges we face are physical ailments of various kinds. Uh, And even in each of the cases that we prayed for specifically this morning together. But they aren't limited to that. And we're not even sure that David's included a, uh, a particular physical sickness. What he might be saying here is that when I'm oppressed in my soul, it affects my body as well. I am weakened in a variety of ways. 
This is part of a physical trial and a spiritual trial at the same time. Uh, the raw reality of suffering uh, indicates that there's often a connection there. He gets more specific about how it affects his soul in verse 3 and says, My soul also is greatly troubled. My bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. That's the real point of the trial. It's what's going on on the inside. And God, how I need your help here as well. Verse 3 then has a bit of a transition. He's been describing himself and all of this as a pattern to follow. You describe when you are facing a trial. Turn to the Lord. Ask for his mercy. Tell him what's going on. Rehearse this before the Lord. Tell him how it's affecting you. But verse 3 has the, altogether has this uh, effect as for me, my soul is troubled. As for you, how long? He's already asked for God's grace. Now the question is, how long do I have to wait? How long is this trial going to continue? God's delays often, if not usually, seem endless, but they are never pointless. The delays of change, of relief, of, of uh, resolution of the challenge that you're facing, in the case of a physical sickness, restoration of health, the delay between this request and when that actually happens is all part of the trial that God has designed. We grow in that delay period. Our faith can thrive in that delay period. We must not regret them. This question is not expressing regret, it's just how long. It's a reminder that that's part of the trial. I don't know how long this is going to go on. But it's also a reminder to the one issuing the prayer that God knows. That God understands the end from the beginning. That God has his hand on all of this. None of this is out of his view. None of this is beyond his control. We need that kind of reminder. The very fact that David is praying to God at this moment is a reminder he knows that God is both knowledgeable and powerful. It's true of your circumstance as well. Telling the Lord in prayer is not a matter of giving him information. God's not taking notes when you pray so that he, oh yeah, like he wasn't aware of that one, I better make sure I write that one down. The impact of prayer 
is, and the benefit of prayer is largely on the person issuing the prayer. It's like reminding yourself, oh yeah, he, he knows. And he has a plan. He has a time frame. He knows even when I don't know. Only God's grace then can resolve your troubles. Verses four and five continue the prayer still to the Lord, but now it acknowledges that only God's grace can fulfill his purpose. In the depths of his uh, challenge, his trial, David is determined by God's grace not to lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture says, this is not just about me. I'm not the center of attention in all of this. The bigger picture is that this is part of God's plan. This is part of his purpose. And so verse four is a reminder in prayer to the Lord and to the prayer himself that deliverance in this case would be another instance to prove his loyalty. Turn, O Lord, David says. Deliver my life. Now he's getting a little more specific. What does he expect God to do? To say, turn, O Lord, is a call for attention. It's as if God might have just turned aside a little bit and you're sort of on the, out of his view, which, of course, doesn't happen. And it's, turn, O Lord. This call is more a reflection of what it feels like from our standpoint. It feels like he's not watching. Turn, O Lord, and now you know you've got his attention. And deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Not for the sake of my worthiness. I've got no such claim on your, on your grace. For the sake of your steadfast love. Well, where does that steadfast love come from? That's a reflection of God's covenant commitment. That there's a relationship here between me and you, Lord. It's reminding the Lord of that. And once again, it's reminding yourself of that. There's a relationship here, and that relationship comes with some obligations. In this case, obligations on your part, because you promised to care for me. You promised to meet my needs. You promised that you are going to love me steadfastly. We like to call this God's loving loyalty, and it's unfailing. Remind God of that, that deliverance would prove what he has promised. Verse 5, it would do something else as well. Victory would bring him glory. 
glory for God, the very reason for our existence, and that's also at stake here. Paul, uh, David here simply, well, for the last year and a half, I've been saying Paul from Romans, so it's gonna, it might be in a, in a transition here, might, might take more than a week or two. Uh, David uh, just points out a simple biblical fact. In death, there's no remembrance of you. David's not saying here that uh, people that die forget about God. What he's saying is what they don't do anymore is on this earth recount the deeds of the Lord for which he deserves honor. Nobody's doing that. Uh, The end of our opportunity to bring glory on this earth comes with death. Okay? I said it was a simple fact. You are no longer praising God. You will have no opportunity to participate in a public worship service after you're dead. Okay, well, that's not a desperate plea. Please, God, I just want to live a little longer. I just want a little more time to enjoy myself. No, it's, God, if you gave me a little more time, it would be more time to bring you honor. Let's just review quickly these first five verses. The key elements of David's example. Keep in mind, this prayer is a pattern to follow. The key elements are, number one, start with your focus on the Lord. Oh, Lord, David started. Number two, explore the possibility of unconfessed sin. You need to eliminate that possibility right up front. Deal with it if there is something there. Number three, plead for his help. Number four, remind him and yourself of biblical truth. These are all important steps to expressing your dependence on God. Well, perhaps you've uttered a similar prayer. The circumstances that you are facing right now, you say, but I, I've done that. Yeah, maybe I haven't followed all of those uh, key elements. <laughs> okay, maybe you left out number, number one or number two. All right, you might have a little more work to do there, but you've uttered a prayer, and it, and it was a, a plea for, uh, for his grace. You've expressed your dependence on him. You've asked him to bring, a, a, to bring deliverance, and there's no deliverance forthcoming. You're still waiting. What's going on? Is, is there something else I need to know? Is there something else I need to do here? What's missing? Well, that's the subject of the last five verses. Verses six through 10, from expressing your dependence on the Lord, the focus now becomes express your confidence in the Lord. 
although in verses six and seven, uh, we're not seeing any such expression. I think it still fits under here, and I'm gonna suggest there is a dramatic change beginning with verse six. Up until now, every line has been a prayer to God. But some things drop out in the last half of this psalm. First of all, there is no more calling on the Lord. O Lord, having occurred five times already, occurs no more times than the rest of the psalm. Essentially, the prayer is over. And that's further confirmed by the reality there aren't any more petitions. David doesn't ask for anything more in the rest of the psalm. So what is going on, first of all, in verses 6 and 7? Now he's focusing on his circumstances. And I'm going to suggest he is more or less wallowing in them. Poor me. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Uh, He's focusing on his own problems. And we understand how strong is the compulsion to do that. You're in the midst of trials. It's hard to think about anything else. Apparently, that's what David's confessing here. Uh, I'm wearing myself out with my moaning. Uh, My eye wastes away, he says in verse 7, because of grief. I'm just focused on this. It grows weak because of all my foes. Yes, in fact, foes brought up here for the very first time are a factor we need to take into account. We'll come back to that in a moment. First, I want to tell you how I think we need to interpret these, uh, these two verses, six and seven. This is David saying, uh, you know what, this is getting me nowhere. I'm wearing myself out with my self-focus, my self-pity, thinking about my problems all the time. And what good is it doing? This is futile. In fact, after presenting your needs to the Lord, this is futile complaining. More about that with building believers tonight whether you come uh, here to church or participate in your home group, this is actually a matter of unbelief. First half of this psalm, if we follow that pattern, we are taking the opportunity to express our dependence on God, all built on the foundation that he's dependable. But the answer hasn't come, the relief hasn't come yet. Is the fault with him? Okay, sometimes we suspect so. But that's unbelief. That's denying the reality of what scripture tells us about our God. 
So focusing on your problems in verse 6 drains your energy, and it also distracts your attention. Yeah, he, he says, even my eyesight here, and he, he doesn't seem to be talking about this physically so much, maybe some, but also that spiritually, I, I'm losing perspective. I, I, I can't see the big picture here because it's, I have such a narrow focus on myself. And then it occurs to him, oh, yes, and then, then there are the enemies lurking around. Now, we don't know that enemies were part of Satan's strategy that actually precipitated this trial. Again, we just don't know about what was it exactly David was facing. But we also know from Job's story that even when there's no sin involved in Job's heart that requires God's discipline, he allows Satan to challenge him with severe trials, the severest trials we can imagine. So that enemies are part of the problem even when we can't see them. He might not be having in mind particular people, although Satan can use human enemies. But whether it is human or satanic or some combination of the two, Adversaries are a factor here. And it could be that David's point in bringing it up here uh, isn't to say that they're the cause, but they can sure make things worse. I mean, what does the enemy think if they see you day after day poo-pooing about your difficult circumstances and complaining about it? What would Satan conclude if he sees that's, what's, that's how you're responding to this trial? Ah, he's thinking, a weakened condition. That person, that believer, is more susceptible to temptation now, and he begins altering his strategy. Satan must not see that. Any human adversaries that are, uh, that are part of your experience, they must not see that weakness. That doesn't mean cover it up. That means deal with it biblically so that it's not a reality in your life. When I was in high school, for one semester of PE class. Our class was, and I was just a freshman that year, our class was assigned the high school football coach. Now he was brand new to our school and he had an excellent reputation. They brought him in because our football program needed revitalization. And uh, I, we just knew right from the start of that PE class, this was gonna be a whole lot like football practice. I mean, he's blowing his whistle and uh, directing us uh, what to do next. And no, 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 not that way. And he keep make, making corrections, getting us all in line. He had us running a, a long distance. This is just the beginning of, uh, of the school year. 
like, I'm going to let you know what this is going to be like in these coming months. So we got done with this long run around the track, and we're all exhausted. We're not used to this. Uh, I got classmates sprawling on the ground, and he comes running over and says, no, no. If you have to rest, get up on one knee. You don't know who's driving by right now. You see, this is the closest I ever got to feeling like I was almost on a football team. (laughs) And I was aware that he knew already that our closest rival was just a couple of miles down that road. One of them driving by might think, ooh, look at that football team. They're out of shape. Uh, We're going to be able to take advantage of their weakness. All right, now he was just telling us, I know you're tired, but cover it up. That's not David's answer. It's not cover it up, but decide to stop the self-pity. I get that from, I'm weary with my moaning. I'm tired of this. This is a miserable way to live, to just be dwelling on my problems day after day and all day long. This can't go on. Acknowledge that this whole process is futile and decide to stop. Now, not just end it out of human resolve, but change your tactic. Instead of self-pity, verses 8 through 10, decide to trust God's timing. You're still waiting. You've expressed your dependence on the Lord. You're still waiting. Now it's time to express your confidence in the Lord. And this not in prayer in verses 8 through 10 uh, the foes, though, here, he, he's, he's, it's like he's talking to his enemies, but they're not around. They're not in the room with David. Who's he talking to then? He's talking to himself. If there are any others of God's people in the vicinity, he's talking to them. What he says then, sounding like it's addressed to the absent enemies, is that he is now confident that God has listened. He has heard my prayer. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. How did David know that? It's because God promised. God promises to hear when his people call upon him. You see, you know it too, don't you? That's how he can say, I don't see any changes forthcoming, but I know he heard my prayer, and I am confident in his help. The only thing I don't know is when. 
We find ourselves then in between two realities. One, we have this assurance of his commitment. That's based on biblical truth. So we're over that hurdle. If you're not sure God cares for you, okay, you, you, you need some biblical truth from his word. But if you're sure of that, now you're on the right side of assurance, but you're still short of the experience of deliverance. We're in that middle ground. What's the right attitude in between those two? It's an attitude of submission to God's timing. I'm willing to wait because after all, the bigger picture is God's plan is more important than my personal pleasure. So I am willing to wait, decide to trust God's timing with the confidence that he will hear your prayer. Furthermore, in verse 10, David expresses a a calm sense of assurance and a tone of triumph as well, even though nothing has changed in his circumstances. He's still waiting, but he can say with confidence, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. How does he know that? Because he knows from God's word, God will win the battle. I don't know when. Ultimately, I don't even know if it's going to be in my lifetime. But that's not the most important thing. What is really important is that I know the end. He will win that battle. In God's plan, victory is coming. So this calm sense of assurance, this tone of triumph replaces the earlier agitation and distress and the, and the moaning and the self-pity. Oh, no, all that's done because I am confident in the Lord. Eyes once dimmed by trials now can see clearly by faith. You know God is at work. Is that really how life works? This psalm almost sound like, ooh, that's that's theoretical. Uh, That doesn't happen in real life. Well, do you know we already sang about this? One of the hymns we joined together in singing this morning included this phrase, and it was describing experiencing the afflictions of life, and it says, and we said, we can have peace, we can have joy, We can be strong. Were you thinking at that moment, this is just theoretical. I I don't think this can actually be how things work. Okay, let's remember a few real life instances. 
You remember Hannah, childless woman, oppressed over her childlessness, praying to God with earnestness, with tears, and emerging from that prayer session confident in the Lord. Her whole demeanor was changed. Think about Christ himself. What was his condition when he entered the Garden of Gethsemane? He tells us, he told his disciples, my soul is burdened even unto death. He was so uh, uh, heavy in his uh, concern for what was uh, about to happen that he sweat great drops of blood. He was weak at that moment. How did he come out of the Garden of Eden? He came out strong. He came out changed. He came out ready to face the enemy. Contrasted by the 11 who did not engage in prayer, who did not express their dependence on God, they went into the Garden of Gethsemane thinking they were strong. They left weak. Even uh, Martin Luther, one instance of great challenge, went into prayer and emerged from that prayer room shouting, we have conquered, we have conquered. No longer weak, no longer unsure, confident in the Lord. That's a decision you can make. It's a decision you must make. Whether your challenge involves long-term pain, uncertainties of the future, what next? Something as day-to-day as an unreasonable boss or unreasonable employees? Present your trials to the Lord. Express to him your dependence on him. And then express to yourself and others around who also may need to hear it, express your confidence in the Lord. Now, in the midst of affliction, you might not be feeling very confident, and that is why you need his help. David could respond this way to his trial because God gave him grace. The reality is you need that grace as well. So let's close by asking for it. You ask him specifically based on what your needs are at this moment. Father, how we thank you today that you know and that you understand and that you care. We thank you for your plan, for the ultimate victory that includes and the uh, and, and the victories that you allow us to experience along the way. 
the relief that you choose to send at certain times. Father, we don't need to know your whole plan. We don't need to know your timetable. What we need to know is what your word already tells us. We ask for your help, Father, that we might then emerge with confidence in you, a confidence that would enhance our testimony in this world, would change our demeanor, would strengthen us in our walk with you. Father, would you help us to make this transition? For Jesus' sake, amen.